Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Ezekiel 21, beginning with verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem, preach against the holy places, and prophesy against the land of Israel, and say to the land of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, and I will draw out my sword, I will draw my sword out of its sheath, and cut off both righteous and wicked from you. Because I will cut off both righteous and wicked from you, therefore my sword shall go out of its sheath against all flesh from south to north, that all flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword out of its sheath. It shall not return any more. Sigh, therefore, son of man, with a breaking heart, and sigh with bitterness before their eyes. And it shall be when they say to you, Why are you sighing that you shall answer? Because of the news, when it comes, every heart will melt, all hands will be feeble, every spirit will faint, and all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it is coming and shall be brought to pass, says the Lord. So God's message to his people here through Ezekiel is, Behold, I'm against you. Um, you know, you and I as New Testament Christians, we can go back to Romans 8.31 where it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, what a comfort that is for each one of us. But here God is saying just the opposite to the nation of Judah at this time. He's saying, I am against you. And as Adam Clark, he's a commentator, as he says, it's dismal news when God is against us, who can be for us? So this is really a bad situation that Judah is in because of their rebellion against him. And because God is against him, he's telling him, I'm drawing out the sword against him. And this is the prophecy of God's sword against Jerusalem. And notice that God says it's my sword, Um, but it's going to be in the hand of the Babylonians. It's going to be in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, who's going to execute God's wrath on Jerusalem. And here in this prophecy... Ezekiel's tell them the destruction is going to be complete. It's going to affect both the righteous and the unrighteous. And when you read that and you hear about that, it's, it just seems unfair, doesn't it? That God would allow the righteous to suffer with the unrighteous. Well, we have to understand, first of all, the righteous are not being punished for the sins of the wicked. Remember back in Ezekiel 18, where we read where it said, the soul that sins shall die? Everyone's accountable for their own walk their own relationship with God. Um, The unrighteous, they're not only going to die, but they're going to perish eternally. The righteous, they may die as a result of what's happening, but they won't perish. You know, I think really what this is, is just a stark reminder of the consequences of sin. Because when we sin, sometimes we think it's just between me and God. No, no, no. When you sin, quite frequently, it affects others around you. Divorce is a perfect example. I think of the the innocent people that are suffering through something like that or or infidelity in a marriage. There's so many other things that the innocent suffer right along with the with the with those that are committing those sins. 
And so here in this prophecy, now, you know, as we've been going through Ezekiel, he's been told by God to do all these strange things, and it's a sign to the people. And here he's told to sigh before the people as a sign. I've got that down as a science there, sighing. You know, Teresa told me, hey, Connie, can you take out the garbage? Oh, man, don't you see my time is valuable? I'm a pastor. I'm preparing for Sunday, you know. So I've got it down as a science. Well, Ezekiel was to sigh before the people. And the people were going to notice him sighing and go, what's up with that, Ezekiel? And basically, he's to tell them that when they hear the news of the destruction of Jerusalem, their hearts are going to melt for fear and be broken at the news. Because, I mean, Jerusalem, these guys are all in Babylon at this time. Ezekiel's in Babylon. The, the elders of Jerusalem that have been coming to him, they're, they're all in Babylon at this time. And so when they hear the news, I mean, they're thinking, God's going to deliver us pretty soon. We're going to go back to Jerusalem. But when it happens, they realize, no, they're not going back. Jerusalem's been destroyed. All their hope is going to be dashed because they've put their hope in their religion. They've put their hope in the temple and their their nationalistic pride of, of Jerusalem and Judah and stuff. And God says, no, you ain't going back, at least not for a while. You're going to be in Babylon. So verse 8. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Say a sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished. Sharpened to make a dreadful slaughter. Polished to flash like lightning. Should we then make mirth? It despises the scepter of my son as it does all wood. Uh, what does it mean? It despises the scepter of my son as all wood. Well, you know, when you go through the Bible... Israel is described as God's son. Exodus 4.22, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Hosea 11.1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So my son, this is speaking about Israel, or in this case it's the nation of Judah. The sword, he says, would despise the scepter of God's son. And the scepter, really that's speaking about a king who reigns. A scepter is like a rod or a staff that's held in a king's hand and it's a symbol of his authority. And so basically what God is saying here, it's referring to the kings who are now ruling in the nation of Judah and says that that sword is going to strike even them. They're not going to be exempt. And it says the sword would strike the king of Judah basically as it does all would. You see, the kings of Judah... They had a special place. I mean, they descended from David, and, and they had an opportunity to reign righteously. And God would have blessed them as a nation, but they turned their backs on the Lord. And so it's like they're just like anybody else because of their turning their back on the Lord. And, and you know, I think about it for any one of us, apart from him, we're just no better than anybody else. We're, 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 without him, we're nothing. And that's basically what God is saying about the kings of Israel. In this case, it's Zedekiah, who's the king at this time. Verse 11. And he has given it to be polished that it may be handled. This sword is sharpened and it is polished to be given into the hand of the slayer. Cry and wail, son of man, for it will be against my people, against all the princes of Israel. Terrors, including the sword, will be against my people. Therefore, strike your thigh, because it is a testing. And what if the sword despises even the scepter? And he answers his own question. The scepter shall be no more. 
says the Lord. So before Ezekiel was to sigh in the presence of the Lord, and now he's to cry and to wail and to strike his thigh. And so God here is declaring through Ezekiel that there will be no more kings to rule over Judah. But that's it. They're done. Zedekiah is going to be the last earthly king there to reign in Judah. Verse 14, You therefore, son of man, prophesy and strike your hands together. So now he's got to strike his hands together. Uh, The third time, let the sword do double damage. It is the sword that slays. The sword that slays the great men that enters their private chambers. I have set the point of the sword against all their gates, that the heart may melt and many may stumble. Ah, it is made bright. It is grasped for slaughter. Swords at the ready, thrust right. Set your blade, thrust left. Who, wherever your edge is ordered, I also will beat my fists together, and I will cause my fury to rest. I, the Lord, have spoken. It's Verse 14 is interesting there. When it says it's the sword that slays, the sword that slays great men that enters their private chambers. You know, if you go through the Bible, oftentimes a sword is a picture of the Word of God. Remember Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? You go through the Bible, and, and, and maybe this is just a, an idea as you're doing your devotions, as you're going through the Bible, and you come across something about a sword. Think, I wonder if there's some kind of a picture of the, of the Bible in there, the Word of God. And, you know, going all the way back to the beginning in Genesis 3.24, remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and God cast them out of the garden and He set a cherubim with a flaming sword and He was to guard the way to the tree of life. And I always want, what, what does it mean, guarding the way to the tree of life? Well, if they had eaten of the tree of life, they would have lived forever. And if they had eaten of the tree of life in their fallen state, they would have lived forever in a fallen state. And so God in His mercy kept them from eating of the tree of life during that time. And there's a flaming sword there. The flaming sword was meant to guard them. And you know, the Word of God guards and protects you and I from making bad choices that have long-lasting consequences. If we'll just heed God's Word. The book of Proverbs is full of warnings that are meant to guard us. Moving on further in the Bible, Exodus 32. We talked about this actually last Wednesday night. Remember when the uh, when uh, uh, Moses was up on Mount Sinai and, and he was receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord. And, and during that time, the children of Israel, they got Aaron to, to make a golden calf and they started worshiping the golden calf. And Moses came down from the mountain there and uh, he ordered the Levites, the men who from his tribe that came to, onto his side, basically, he told them to take on their sword and kill 3,000 worshipers of the golden calf. And the reason why was in order to purge or to purify the children of Israel and to purge the camp of idolatry. Again, the Word of God. The Word of God has a purifying effect in our lives as well as we heed it, as we read it, as we follow it. Psalms 119.9, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your Word. Going into the New Testament, Luke 22.50, remember when Jesus was arrested there in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter, he takes out a sword and he goes to strike the servant of the high priest and, and he's probably aiming square, but he's a bad aim. And so he gets and he, he misses and he just nails, takes the ear off of the guy. 
and, and the Lord puts the ear, heals the man. But you know, we sometimes can yield, or excuse me, wield the sword, the Word of God, and we've, sometimes we quote verses at people. Have you ever done that to somebody? You want to get them, so you quote a verse at them, and you know, it's like, ah, take that. And, you, and, and we use the Word of God kind of like a weapon, and, and we can cause great damage if we're not careful. You know? But here, it says, the sword slays the great men and enters the private chambers. And right away, I thought of Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It gets into the private chambers. You know, sometimes we can really think good about ourselves. You know, I'm a a pretty good Christian. I've prayed today. I've done this. I'm doing some good things for the Lord. And then we start reading the Word of God. And the Word of God, you know, we look at it and we read it and we go, wow. Oh, man, I don't measure up. And, and it kind of cuts through all the stuff that we kind of put up in our own minds or maybe what we try to portray to other people. And it reveals what our hearts are really at and our motives and, and our, our motivations and things. And so it, it, it digs in and it reveals the thoughts and intents of our heart. Well, moving on, verse 18. The word of the Lord came to me again saying, And son of man... Appoint for yourself two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to go. Both of them shall go from the same land. Make a sign, put it at the head of the road to the city. Appoint a road for the sword to go to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah in a fortified Jerusalem. So now Ezekiel is told to put up a sign at the fork of the road. Now, again, he's in Babylon at the time. So where did he put up this sign? Um, you know, is this a literal thing? Did, did he literally have to go put up a sign or is this figurative? Well, some of the commentators believe that there actually was a place outside of Babylon where two roads diverged. One road led to Rabbah. Now, Rabbah or Rabbah, however you want to pronounce it. It was the capital of Ammon in that day. The, the, the land of Ammon, the Ammonites, they were on the other side of the Jordan, opposite of Israel. They were basically in what today would be known as the, the nation state of Jordan, basically. It used to be called Transjordan, but now it's Jordan. That's where Ammon was located. And then there was another road that led through Syria and down into Jerusalem. And so... Uh, whether that was a literal or not, in any event, this prophecy describes that when the Babylonians were going to go south to attack, Nebuchadnezzar is going to have to decide who he is going to attack, Jerusalem or the Ammonites. Verse 21, For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the road, at the fork of the two roads, to use divination. He shakes the arrow. He consults the image images. He looks at the liver. In his right hand is the divination for Jerusalem to set up battering rams, to call for a slaughter, to lift the voice with shouting, to set battering rams against the gates, to heap up a siege mount, and to build a wall. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to make a decision and he's going to use what's known as divination. It'd be the ancient equivalent of uh, like reading a horoscope or, or going to a palm reader to make his decision. Verse 23, And it will be to them like a false divination in the eyes of those who have sworn oaths with them, but he will bring their iniquity to remembrance that they may be taken. What he's talking about here, the Jews hearing this prophecy of Ezekiel are going to think that Ezekiel's falsely prophesying because after all, 
the Babylonians are using occult methods to decide what, where to attack. And, and how is God going to bless that? And how is God going to lead them to attack his beloved Jerusalem, the apple of his eye? And so they're going to say, well, Ezekiel, that's a false prophecy. How could a righteous God guide the Babylonians to attack his city through a pagan practice of divination? You know what it says in Proverbs 16.33? The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Every decision is from the Lord. You know, as Nebuchadnezzar is contemplating who to attack, God's going to remind him about something that Zedekiah did. What did Zedekiah do? Zedekiah committed treachery against Nebuchadnezzar. You see, Zedekiah, he was descended from Josiah, but he was placed on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had already gone to Babylon. This he had already gone to Babylon twice, or excuse me, Jerusalem twice, and he had taken this last time, he had taken Jehoiachin, who was a king at that time, taken him captive to Babylon, and he put Zedekiah in his place. And so Zedekiah was kind of like a figurehead. He was appointed by, by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He's kind of like a puppet leader. And for a while there, Zedekiah submitted to Nebuchadnezzar, submitted to Babylon. But after a while, he revolted against Babylon, and he made an alliance with the king of Egypt and with the Ammonites. And he was against, they were kind of forming an alliance to try to fend off the Babylonian invasion that was coming. And so God's going to remind Nebuchadnezzar, hey, remember what Zedekiah did? He's going to decide, do I go to the Ammonites or do I go to Jerusalem? Hey, wait a minute. I remember what Zedekiah did. And so you see, in reality, even though Zedekiah had, had rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, in reality, Zedekiah had revolted against God. Because Jeremiah, the prophet, had told Zedekiah, Zedekiah, you're going to go into captivity. God is punishing you, punishing the nation because of your sin. Just submit to God, submit to his will, go to Babylon, you'll be okay, he's going to take care of you, but you're, you're going to go. And Zedekiah just blew off the words of Jeremiah, he tried to kill Jeremiah actually. And, uh, and so he went ahead, and, and so in reality, he's, Zedekiah is rebelling against God, against God's will in this situation. Verse 24, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered and that your transgressions are uncovered so that in all your doings your sins appear, because you have come to remembrance, you shall be taken in hand. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to come to this fork in this road, decide which he's going to go, and he's going to remember what Zedekiah did, and he's going to go, huh, going to Jerusalem. And he's going to go, and he's going to attack Jerusalem. Verse 25, Now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end, thus says the Lord, remove the turban and take off the crown. Nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the humble and humble the exalted. Overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. This is a very interesting prophecy here at the end of this chapter. It's speaking, really, I believe, of two events. First of all, the profane, wicked prince of Israel whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end. This is speaking literally about Zedekiah. His reign, you know, is going to come to an end. Zedekiah was the last king on the throne in Judah. 
you know, and, and they had had the prophecy. God had promised David that a, one of your sons would reign on the throne and was talking about the Messiah and he'd reign forever. And so here, this royal line of David, these men, they failed. And, you know, Satan, probably it seemed like a victory to him because how could the promised Messiah come descended from David if the, if the line of kings was, was ended at that point? It says, take off the turban, remove the crown, nothing remains the same. In Zedekiah's case, and I think also in our case, we can't continue in open rebellion against God as an individual or even as our nation. We can't continue and things are just going to keep going and going and going. Sooner or later, God's going to judge man's rebellion. He's not going to allow it to continue on with no repercussions indefinitely. That should be a warning for you and I. You know, don't ever mistake God's silence or his seeming inactivity to be looking the other way when you're continuing in sin. Don't, don't mistake it. Because what's happening is God's giving you time to repent. He's long-suffering. Just like we were singing, he's long-suffering, slow to anger. But he's also a righteous God, and he's giving us opportunity to repent. So don't ever mistake that. If you go, you know, I'm sinning, but nothing's happening. Hey, <laughs> just take heed. Verse 27 says, Overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. This is speaking of the coming Messiah. Of course, that'd be in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting. Seventy years they were in captivity in Babylon. <clears throat> when they came back to Jerusalem after their captivity was finished, they didn't reestablish the monarchy in Israel. And I think it's in fulfillment of this prophecy. And then Jesus came, and he lived, and he was crucified. Do you remember the sign that they put over his head at the cross? It said, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Remember the high priests and the, 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 the Jewish leaders, they complained to Pilate. They said, hey, change that sign. Say that he said he was the King of the Jews. And Pilate said, no, what I put, I put. And I think that's in fulfillment of this prophecy. He who came, whose right it is. This is the King, Jesus. So this prophecy first addresses the overthrow of the monarchy of Judah after Zedekiah and the coming of Jesus Christ. But I said it also speaks, I think, of two events. That profane, wicked prince of Israel whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end. I think it's speaking about the Antichrist as well. It's interesting, you know, Israel has once more become a nation miraculously after 2,000 years, and they came back and, again, they didn't establish a monarchy. But there's coming a man who's going to trick the Jews into believing he's their Messiah, and he's going to be the Antichrist. He's going to make a seven-year covenant with Israel, and he's going to allow them to rebuild the third temple Midway through those seven years, he's going to break his covenant with Israel. He's going to set himself up as king, not only over Israel, but over the entire world. And he's going to demand that he be worshipped as God. But he too is going to be overthrown by the coming of Jesus Christ at the end of tribulation. He whose right it is. And it says, and nothing remains the same. That's going to be the end of that age. 
And there's going to be the beginning of a new age, and that new age is that thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth for a thousand years. Verse 28, And you, son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites and concerning their reproach, and say, A sword, a sword is drawn, polished for slaughter, for consuming, for flashing, while they see false visions for you, while they divine a lie to you, to bring you on the necks of the wicked, the slain, whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end. Return it to its sheath. I will judge you in the place where you were created, in the land of your nativity. I will pour out my indignation on you. I will blow against you with the fire of my wrath and deliver you into the hands of brutal men who are skillful to destroy. You shall be fuel for the fire. Your blood shall be in the midst of the land. You shall not be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. This is a prophecy against the Ammonites. Remember, the Ammonites had uh, collaborated with Ezekiel in rebelling against the Babylonians. They're also under the same judgment and this prophecy was literally fulfilled. After the destruction of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar also destroyed Ammon. But there's a big difference here. Let me ask you this rhetorically. Have you ever been to an Ammonite restaurant lately? Have you ever gone to an, a good, had some good Ammonite food? Any of you have like, you know, Ammonite blood? Like, yeah, my great-grandfather was an Ammonite. Probably not. In fact, I could venture to say no. Why? Because as a people, they were wiped out, never to return again. But I could ask you the same question. Any of you been to any good Jewish restaurants lately? Now, I don't know if Rochester has any Jewish restaurants, but probably up in the Twin Cities, maybe. How about any of you of descent, you know, Jewish descent? And you probably, there could be somebody in here that, yeah, you know. Why? Why? What's the difference? The difference is simply because of God's covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, there really was no, no reason why they wouldn't be obliterated other than God's promise. And that's really speaking about God's grace. But the Ammonites, you don't, you don't find an Ammonite anymore. It's not because the Jewish people deserved it. It's only because of God's grace. We're going to move into chapter 22 here. Verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Now, son uh, now, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Yes, show her abominations. You know, Jerusalem wasn't guilty of like minor lapses in faith or maybe unintentional, you know, lack of good judgment. It's interesting if you think about it. God's going to show them their abominations, why he's uh, sending the sword after them. You know, I was thinking about that as we're preparing, as I was preparing my message here. You know, isn't that typically how we look at our sin? It's like, you know, it's just, uh, I just made a bad judgment or, you know, I didn't mean to do it that way, but, you know, I just made a mistake. It was just a lapse, you know. And and typically we describe our own sin that way, right? I mean, I do. It's like, ah, you know, I had good intentions, but I did the wrong thing. Or, you know, it's because of this happened, I did this, you know. And that's usually how we excuse our sin. But when I look at your sin, hey, man, you're violating God's word. You did this or that. You know, and, and I'm quick to point out your sins, but mine, you know, it's not so bad. Well, God's going to reveal to the children of Israel why or what their sin is, their abominations. And he's going to enumerate them here. 
verse 3. Then say, thus says the Lord God, the city sheds blood in her own midst that her time may come. And she makes idols within herself to defile herself. You have become guilty by the blood which you have shed and have defiled yourselves with the idols which you have made. You have caused your days to draw near and have come to the end of your years. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all countries. Those near and those uh, far from you will mock you as infamous and full of tumult. And you know, you look at the world today and to this very day, the Jewish people, they are mocked and they're despised throughout the world, just as God said they would be. Verse 6, Look, the princes of Israel, each one has used his power to shed blood in you. So one of their sins, those in power were abusing their power to, to the harm of the people. They were just doing whatever they wanted for the sake of the, that they had the power. They were in control. I'm glad that doesn't happen in our nation. Verse 7, In you they have made light of father and mother. In your midst they have oppressed the stranger. In you they have mistreated the fatherless and the widow. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. In you are men who slander to cause bloodshed. In you are those who eat on the mountains. In your midst they commit lewdness. Verse 10. In you, men uncover their father's nakedness. In you, they violate women who are set apart during their impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles uh, his daughter-in-law. And another, in you, violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you, they take bribes to shed blood. You take usury and increase. You have made profit from your neighbors by extortion and have forgotten me, says the Lord God. You know, if you go through that passage of Scripture and you sit down and you examine each of these sins, I think all but maybe one of the Ten Commandments was not violated by the people here. And not once, but in continuous rebellion. The first commandment, they shall have no other gods before them. Here they're doing that. They're worshiping idols. Or, or the second commandment, not to have a graven image, not to bow down and serve them. They were worshiping idols. Uh, the fourth commandment, remembering the Sabbath. They violated the Sabbath. The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. They despised father and mother. Uh, the sixth commandment, murder. They, they committed murder. Seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. You know, it's interesting. When I was down in Mexico a number of years ago, and I was, we were doing some street witnessing, I remember meeting this guy. And I was kind of talking to him about the, the, the law of God and stuff. And, and uh, I forgot the exact conversation, but I asked him, I said, you know, you know, the Bible says you're not to commit adultery. He goes, whoa. He goes, yeah, well, that's just for married people, you know. And, and, and so, and he, because he was living with this girl at the time. And, and uh, you know, you look at that and go, well, not, do not commit adultery. Well, that means sexual immorality, period. Any kind of sex outside of marriage is, is it's the same word, pornea. Uh, but they violated that. Do not steal. They violated that. Do not lie. They violated that. Do not covet. Uh, the only commandment that I see that I couldn't find that literally kind of jumped out was do not take the name of the Lord in vain. But they probably did that as well. So they, and it wasn't just a one-time thing. They were in continuous rebellion against God and all these commandments. Verse 13. Behold, therefore, 
I beat my fists at the dishonest profit which you have made and at the bloodshed which has been in your midst. Can your heart endure or can your hands remain strong in the days when I shall deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. I will scatter you among the nations, disperse you throughout the countries, and remove your filthiness completely from you. You shall defile yourself in the sight of the nations. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Again, this is one of those often repeated phrases. God says, I'm going to do this stuff, and you're going to know that I am the Lord. You know, by their actions, they had shown that they had turned their backs on the Lord. They no longer regarded him as Lord. And so God is prophesying that they're going to be scattered throughout the nations. It literally happened. They have been scattered throughout the nations. And so he's doing these things in order to remind them that he's Lord. Verse 17, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. They are all bronze, tin, iron, and lead in the midst of a furnace. They have become dross from silver. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have all become dross, therefore behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem as men gather silver, bronze, iron, lead, and tin into the midst of a furnace to blow fire on it, to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger and in my fury, and I will leave you there and melt you. Yes, I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in its midst. As silver is melted in the midst of a furnace, so you shall be melted in its midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, uh, that I the Lord have poured out my fury on you. The nation of Judah they had gotten so far in their rebellion against the Lord that he no longer considered them silver that could be refined. They are going to go into the furnace. They're going to go into the heat of trial and tribulation, but they, he considers them like dross. And dross is basically the, the byproduct. After you refine, you know, it's a junk that you kind of you, you get rid of, you discard. And that's how, they, how far they had gone. Verse 23, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured people. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. So now it's speaking about the false prophets. And I find it remarkable and kind of interesting that uh, the false prophets, even back then, were tied to taking money and devouring people and making many widows. You know, you see it today. So often there are false prophets that are manipulating people in order to give money to their ministries. You know, and you'll hear things like, you know, you need to send in your seed faith offering and God's going to bless you a hundredfold. And, and, and they, they manip- and then you get these people and, and a lot of times they're targeting these poor elderly people that, you know, they're living on a fixed income and they give to these ministries. And, you know, it always makes, amazes me because it's like if, if they believe so firmly in that, you know, that seed faith thing, then why don't they take their money and their ministry and mail it out to everybody? And then, and then say, you know, because God's going to bring them back a hundredfold. So, you know, let's mail out a hundred thousand, we'll get a million back. You know, if, if they really, truly believe that, why don't they do that themselves? But no, they want you to give them their money. So it's interesting. Even back then, the false prophets were tied with taking money. Verse 26, 
Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and the unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean, and they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths. So I am profaned among them. So the priests or the religious leaders, they're guilty of not distinguishing between holy and unholy and not making known the difference between the clean and the unclean. That really came home to me personally not too long ago when we had that marriage amendment thing that came out, you know, it was either you're for homosexual marriage or you're against it. And it was amazing to me that in within the, the churches here in our city that there were people on both sides of that. And I thought, wow, they're not distinguishing between the clean and the unclean. They're, they're the same. You know, that's not sin. You know, one of the things, and, and I'll just be honest with you as a pastor, you know, it scares me. And I pray this an awful lot. It's like, Lord, don't let me misrepresent you in front of the people. Don't let me say something that's not true, Lord. I, I, I don't want to be false, you know, accused of teaching falsely. But there's a lot of that goes on even today. And so the priests here, they were not distinguishing. They were not letting the people know this is sin and that's not sin. They weren't, they weren't making a difference. Verse 27, her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey to shed blood, to destroy people, and to get dishonest gain. Her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord had not spoken. Prophets, again, they're supposedly speaking words from God, but they were false and, you know, you look at this and go, well, okay, the priests, the prophets, the leaders, man, the government. Just in case you think that, you know, all of the problems that we have today have to do with the church, to do with the false teachings or the government. Uh, look at verse 29. The people, that's everybody else. <laughs> the people of the land have used oppressions, committed robbery, and mistreated the poor and needy, and they wrongfully oppressed the stranger. You know, and, and I'm the first one, you know, to say that there's things wrong with our government and there's wrongs with our leadership. And I, you, know, you see all these things that are happening and, and it just, you know, I get angry when I hear some of this stuff. Um, but, you know, I think the people that we have in office and the leaders that we have, I think is a reflection of our culture and a reflection of our nation. And to be honest, collectively as a nation, we've turned our backs on God. And, and so we can't, I mean, yeah, there's things that I think we need to stand up and think we need to vote and make our voice known. We have that freedom to do that. We should be exercising that. But it's really a reflection of us ourselves as a people. Verse 30. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it but I found none, or excuse me, but I found no one. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath, and I have recompensed their deeds on their heads, says the Lord. I think verse 30 there is such a sad commentary on the spiritual condition of the people of Israel. You know, God wasn't looking for a godly prince. He wasn't looking for a godly priest or a godly prophet, although I'm sure he was, but I mean, not specifically. He was looking for any man, any woman who would stand in the gap before him 
on behalf of the land. And it says, but he found no one. No one who was willing to stand up in the gap. You know, when I look at these sins enumerated in chapter 22, you know, you could just pick up a newspaper or watch television or whatever, the media. It describes the spiritual condition of our nation today. It really does, of our culture. And I think just like back then, today, God's looking through the land for us, looking for men who are willing and women who are willing to stand in the gap on the behalf of this nation. What does it mean to stand in the gap? The best example that I can think of, besides Jesus, of course, is Moses in the Old Testament. In Psalm 106, 23, Speaking about Moses, it says, therefore he said that he would destroy them. God, when the children of Israel, when we talked about earlier, when they were on the mountain, uh, when Moses went up on the mountain Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, and the children of Israel started worshiping the golden calf, and, and up there on the mountain, <clears throat> God says, hey, Moses, your people, the guys that you let out of Israel, they're, they're rebelling. And, the, and Moses said, Lord, they actually had an argument. It's like, Lord, they're not my people. They're your people. Because mm-hmm. God said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just wipe them out. Get out of the way. I'm going to wipe them out. I'll make a nation out of you, Moses. Mm-hmm. We would have had the Mosalites or whatever you call it mm-hmm. if that had happened. And you know what Moses did? He said, God, don't do that. Don't, and he stood in the gap before them and he pleaded with God. He said, Lord, remember your covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, look how you brought them out of the land of Egypt. You did, you did all these miraculous things in the sight of the heathen nations around. God, don't destroy them. And, and, and it wasn't like God was just like, it's like Moses changed God's mind. I think God was trying to get Moses to the point where Moses would intercede on, the ha- on behalf of the people. God was trying to make Moses like him. Because like we sang, God is slow to anger, compassionate, abounding in loving kindness. He doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I think just like that, God is wanting you and I who are willing to stand up and say, you know what? I want to be that. I want to stand in the gap. How do we do it? Paul says this in 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. Therefore I exhort first of all, that uh, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants you and I to be interceding, to be praying for this nation, to be praying for our leadership, to be praying for our neighbors. You know, you can get really, you know, it seems it's kind of funny. Wherever we live, we end up with neighbors that, you know, maybe it's us, but, you know, we end up with neighbors that we have difficulties with and uh, for whatever reason. Um, And, you know, it's easy to start thinking of them like those neighbors, you know, and, and, and to have that attitude. And what does God want us to do? God wants us to pray for them. Because, you know, as we pray for them, God's changing our heart as well, giving us compassion for them as well. And, and for you and I, you know, we can, we can stand here, we can gripe about what's going on in the nation, but really what we should do as believers, we should be getting on our knees and praying and asking God to change the nation, asking God to change these people's hearts. 
And, and so that's what God is looking for in you and I this morning, those that are willing to stand in the gap. So why don't you stand right now? We'll stand in the gap. And I want to give us an opportunity to respond to this word. If the, if the Lord's been speaking to you this morning, we're going to pray. I'm going to pray, but I want to give you an opportunity. We'll pray together. Give you an opportunity to just say, Lord, I want to. I want to be one of those that's willing to stand in the gap, Lord. I don't. I don't want to just live my life blind to what's going on, Lord. I want to do something about it. You know, sometimes you know we, we're we're to witness to people. We're to, we're to be involved in their lives. We're to share Christ with them, and uh, you know, and that's good. And we should be doing that. And some of you say, well, you know, I don't know if I'm really skilled at that, or you know, I'm not really good at that. There's something that you can do 